Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Many of you are aware that the um, festival known as Passover will begin uh, shortly. According to the uh, 2013 um, Pew Report, uh, a major survey of the North American Jewish community, Passover is one of the most celebrated festivals, and most uh, and the Seder, the evening meal of Passover, is one of the most observed traditions in all of North American Jewry. Um, so I thought this morning that I would chat with you a bit about the Seder, the evening meal of the... Uh, Passover holiday. In a previous recording, uh, Father Ivema II of St. Paul's College of Ottawa, Canada, and I chatted about the Last Supper and its possibility of having been a Passover meal, um, and you are referred to the website or uh, the podcast on iTunes, if you'd like to listen about to that conversation. But this morning, I want to speak about the history of the Seder and how what Jews today uh, observe and celebrate has evolved since the biblical account and suggest perhaps some reasons for that um, change in the biblical observance. Let's begin by acknowledging that the Jewish holiday of Passover commemorates the Exodus from Egypt. The roots of the festival are found in Exodus 12, in which God instructs the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb at twilight on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan before the sun sets. And you can find that commandment in Exodus 12, verse 18. That night, according to Exodus 12, the Israelites are to eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The lamb's blood should be swabbed on their doorposts as a sign, and God, seeing the sign, will then pasach, pass over, the houses of the Israelites. Again, in 1213, we read of this miraculous event, and the concomitant component of this is that the tenth plague, that killing of the firstborn children, usually interpreted as sons, will simultaneously take place with God passing over the homes of the Israelites. Exodus 12 commands the Israelites to repeat this practice every year, le'olam in Hebrew, performing the sacrifice during the day and then consuming it after the sun has set. And as many of you know, according to Jewish tradition, the new day begins with the setting of the sun. So the sacrifice is made on the 14th, 
but the beginning of Passover and the meal are actually on the 15th day. Although the sequence of dates with regard to the sacrifice and eating is not specified in Exodus. Exodus 12 further speaks of a seven-day festival celebrated in Israel as the seventh day, but in Galut, outside the land of Israel, as an eighth day, though not specified in the Torah. And it is on the first day, um, which be- the first day begins when the sacrifice is consumed, according to Exodus 12, 15. However, once the Israelites were settled in Israel, and once a temple was built in Jerusalem, the original sacrifice described in Exodus 12 changed dramatically. Passover became one of the three Jewish pilgrimage festivals, all three biblical in origin, and Israelites were expected to travel to Jerusalem on each of these festivals, though only on Passover were they um, assumed to sacrifice a paschal lamb, a Passover lamb at the temple, during the afternoon of the 14th, and then consume the Passover sacrifice once the sun had set and the festival had formally begun on the 15th. This kind of celebration is described as taking place during the reigns of King Hezekiah and Josiah, as noted in 2 Chronicles chapters 30 and 35. As time passed, the practice of Passover observance continued to evolve. Eventually, a number of customs recorded in rabbinic literature begin to accumulate around the meal, which became so highly ritualized and different from the sparse tradition mentioned in Exodus 12, that it now was called Seder, from the Hebrew for order. As you perhaps know, unleavened bread was broken, wine was served, the diners reclined, and hymns, usually referred to as the Hallel, a prescribed collection of psalms, were sung. Furthermore, during the meal, the Exodus story was retold and the significance and the of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine was explained. That's the history. But what is the origin of what you and I know as the Seder and the Haggadah, the book, Haggadah translates as the telling, referring to the telling of the Passover story, what are the origins of that since they're not biblical in nature? And why did Jewish tradition after the destruction of the temple feel the need for introducing a tradition that was not biblical in origin and only had a few remnants of the Exodus account. These traditions are first mentioned in the earliest of 
Jewish rabbinic legal material known as the Mishnah and the Tosefta, which most scholars date to either shortly before or shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70. And you will, of course, know that the temple was destroyed by the Romans after what is known as the First Jewish Revolt. So the Seder rituals, as we know them today, and the vocabulary, um, which is used to describe the um, rituals, um, have an interesting history. So I want to share with you that history and then look, as I said earlier, at some of the origins of that history. According to Mishnah of Passover, chapter 10, the hero of the Seder is the Shamash, the servant who mixed the wine with water and served it, who brought the matzah, the unleavened bread, the hazeret, which we'll speak about in a bit, and the horoset, as we'll speak about and define later, and more to the table. According to the Tosefta, a parallel text to the Mishnah, the shamus dipped the entrails, we're not quite sure what that means, in salt water and served the guests. Hold that in mind. We don't know what the entrails really refers to yet. One of, of course, the primary behaviors uh, that you may see at your friend's Seder is the notion of reclining. Either all people um, sit to one side of their chair, uh, usually with a pillow to that side, or only the leader. According to the Mishnah, even a per poor person may not eat on Erev Pesach, on the eve, until he reclines on a couch. Couch. Many cups of wine. We all know that they are supposed to uh, consume at the Seder four cups of wine. According to the Mishnah again, in the same chapter, chapter 10, I'll identify if it's later or different, a person must drink four cups of wine at the Seder. Interestingly enough, the reclining and the cups of wine seem to have resonance with um, banquet traditions of Greeks and Romans. According to Antiphanes of the 4th century before the Common Era, he said, a, a Greek historian, one should honor the gods to the extent of three cups of wine. According again to Tosefta, a servant should pour water over the hands of those reclining at a Jewish banquet. In Hebrew, this is called nitilat v'natatnu liadayim. Literally, they picked up and poured water on the hands. Jewish scholars say that this is a translation 
of a Greek idiom, which means to take water on the hands, and nitilatya diem, the washing of hands, serves as one of the earliest components of the traditional Seder. Chazeret. Remember, I mentioned that earlier, and now I'm coming back to it. Again, according to the Mishnah, the servant brings chazeret, which we understand to be lettuce, before his master, who dips it in salt water or other liquids until the main course is served. Indeed, the Talmud, the commentary on the Mishnah, which was written over the course of 300 years, states that Rabbi Judah, the prince, known as the um, editor of the earlier rabbinic document, the Mishnah, who was very wealthy and well-versed in Hellenistic culture, ate chazeret all year long. Similarly, um, Atenius, uh, Rabbi Judah's contemporary, mentions lettuce seven times in his learned banquet an encyclopedic compilation about Greek and Roman food and drink in the second century. I hope you're beginning to see some parallelism here, that Jewish tradition, um, the emerging Jewish tradition of Seder, may have its origins in some Greek and Roman banquet passages. Haroset. Haroset today is known as the mixture of nuts and wine and apple. That's the tradition of Eastern European Jews. Sephardic Jews, those from Spain and Arab countries, in which apples were not necessarily easily obtainable, tend to use dates and... um, the fruits of the Middle East mixed with white wine, not red wine, and it serves and it symbolizes the mortar that was used to make bricks as identified in the earlier chapters of Exodus. So according to the Mishnah, again the servant serves haroset with the meal. I can assure you that um, I've never been to a Seder where there's a servant. So to what was the Mishnah referring um, and why they assumed that every Jewish household would have a servant is somewhat unclear. Um, The first or anonymous rabbi in the Mishnah says it's not a mitzvah. It's not God's commandment to have chorosit while a named rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer Bar Sadok, says it's a mitzvah. mitzvah. It is God's commandment. The first anonymous source was no doubt correct because the Mishnah itself says that chorosis was eaten at banquets all year long with flour. And once again, Atanius, the Greek um, Historian describes similar dishes at length and discusses whether they should be served before or after dinner. Heraclitus of Tartanium, a physician of the first century, recommended eating these dishes as an appetizer rather than as dessert. Now, one of the most unusual traditions in the modern-day Seder is what's called the Hillel sandwich. It's in which a... um, 
two pieces of matzah, charoset, this uh, mixture of apples and wine and um, nuts, and bitter herbs are placed between two pieces of matzah. According to the Talmud and to the Haggadah itself, Hillel the Elder used to eat a sandwich of the Paschal lamb, matzah, and mora. And similarly, Greeks and Romans used to eat sandwich bread with lettuce. I hope you're seeing the pattern here. I'm introducing to you this historical development of the Seder based on the second uh, century of the Common Era and further documents, the Afikomen. The Afikomen today is probably the most popular uh, behavior at the Seder. Um, it is a treasure hunt in which children are invited to find a hidden piece of matzah, uh, which is used as the last food to be consumed at the Seder. In uh, 21st century homes, and even in 20th and 19th century homes, the children would hunt for the matzah, primarily to keep them involved in the Seder tradition. And at the end of the search, they would present this afikomen to the leader of the Seder, who would have to redeem it. Redeeming it in the old days was uh, a custom that might have um, entailed a few nuts or a few raisins, depending on where you were living. Today, um, usually redeeming is loonies and toonies. Um, and the reason for redeeming it is since the Seder can't continue until the afikomen is consumed, the leader wants to make sure that the Seder can reach its conclusion. So the afikomen, again, according to the Mishnah, states one may not add an afikomen after the Paschal lamb. The Tosefta and the, um, get, and the Bavli and the Yerushalmi Talmud give three different interpretations of this word. Um, and it's usually accepted that the word is one should not stand up from this eating group and join that eating group. He refers to the, um, this refers to the Greek term epikomon at the climax of the Greek symposium banquet. The revelers used to leave their house and barge into another house and force the family to join in their merrymaking. The Mishnah is saying that this particular Hellenistic custom may not be done after eating the Paschal lamb. I mentioned earlier we have the notion of reclining and that um, Reclining becomes one of the major um, behaviors. So I've mentioned now the primary behaviors of the modern Seder and the symbols. Cups of wine, washing of the hands, the chazeret, some form of lettuce, the haroset, this mixture representing the um, mortar used in making bricks, the Hillel sandwich, I haven't talked about the meaning, the afikomen, um, and this servant, reclining. Good. Um, but how did this become um, formed into a um, formalized meal in which there needed to be a book describing the proper behavior? Um, 
since Plato, yes, which predates um, the Jewish traditions in first century Palestine, a literary species, the so-called symposia, had developed in which a description was given of a banquet held by a few learned men who had met at a friend's house to discuss scientific, philosophical, ethical, aesthetical, grammatical, didactic, and religious themes over a glass, very often over more than one glass of wine, after they had dined together. Plutarch, one of the most famous Greek contributors to this literature, summarizes early practice and theory in the following manner. A symposium is a communion of serious and mirthful entertainment, discourse, and actions. It is meant to further a deeper insight into those points that were debated at the table. For the remembrance of those pleasures which arise from meat and drink is not genteel and short-lived, but the subjects of philosophical queries and discussions remains always fresh after they have been imparted and they are relished by those who are absent as well as those who are present at the dinner. For those of you who may have attended uh, Seder, either um, at your church or with Jewish friends, or you may be Jewish who are listening, you hear the resonance of the purposes of the Seder, that the Seder is a communion of serious and mirthful entertainment, the retelling of the Passover story, the retelling of rabbinic traditions related to the Passover story, and of course, entertainment, um, the various traditions that surround the event of Passover, which are meant to keep the children involved, and perhaps which are intended to uh, keep adults focused. Um, Passover seders have a tradition of lasting quite long, um, and so within the confines of that length, there are always needs not just for eating, but for conversation and entertainment. So, let's examine for a moment some of the parallels between the seder and the symposia. According to the Mishnah, after the servant pours the second cup of wine, resonance of the Gospel of John there, the son asks his father questions. But if the son does not have understanding, his father teaches him, listen to this, how different this night is from all other night. Then the father, according to the manuscripts of the Mishnah, exclaims about three subjects. Why do we dip twice? Why do we eat only matzah? And why do we eat only roasted meal? In today's Seder, there are four questions. Three of them are similar to this. The children, usually the youngest child, asks, why is this night different from all other nights? Why do we dip twice? Why do we only dip matzah? A fourth question varies depending on historical interpretation. Plutarch, a contemporary of the five sages mentioned in the Haggadah, who reclined in B'nai Brock, and we'll get to them in a minute, says that the question at a symposium should be easy, the problems known. 
the interrogations plain and familiar, not intricate and dark, so that they may neither vex the unlearned nor frighten them. Well, in the Seder, the four questions are followed with an understanding of four types of children who would ask these questions. The one child who's extremely knowledgeable, the child who is um, unlearned, the child who is disruptive, and the child who doesn't know how to ask, which is different from unlearned. Um, this fits with the notion of the uh, symposium. Now, as I indicated, Plutarch, a contemporary of the five stages in the Haggadah, um, this story is known as the Sages at Brene Brock. Here's how the story goes. The story is told of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Eleazar, the son of Azariah, Rabbi Akiba, and Rabbi Tarfan, who were reclining at Bene Brock and were talking about the exodus from Egypt that entire night until their pupils came and said to them, Our masters, the time for morning Shema has arrived. Similarly, in Greek symposia literature, we find that the stories that have come down to us include the names of the participants, the place, the subject of discussion, and the occasion. And sometimes, we are told, the symposium lasted until dawn. dawn. Now, I've indicated to you the similarities between the development of the Hebrew Seder um, the literary forms of the Haggadah. And I want to end this morning's presentation that by saying, what can we learn from all of these parallels? Well, what we learn is that the Jewish people throughout generations did not live in a vacuum. It absorbed much from its surroundings, but it did not absorb blindly. The sages absorbed the form of the symposium from the Hellenistic world, but drastically changed its content. The Greeks and Romans discussed love, beauty, and food and drink at the symposium, while the sages at the Seder discussed the exodus from Egypt, the miracles of God, and the greatness of the redemption. The symposium was meant for the elite, while the sages turned the Seder into an educational experience for the entire Jewish people. Indeed, this pattern repeated itself throughout Jewish history. Various scholars have shown that the 13 Midot of Rabbi Ishmael, as well as the 32 Midot, are based on an exegesical method borrowed from the ancient Near East and the Hellenistic world. We, as Jews, have learned that there is much to learn from the world around us, and that by transformation, using that which is surrounding us, we can ensure our own continuity. I hope that you will have the opportunity, either this year or in subsequent years, to observe and participate in the Seder, the evening meal of Passover, and that you will use some of this information to help you have a better understanding of why this tradition has lasted now for more than 2,000 years. 
For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and shalom.